You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. More exposed databases, trouble with routers, issues with storage cameras, and problems with storage devices. Some have been promptly fixed, but others are offering users Hobson's choice, take it or leave it. An apparent ransomware campaign says payment demands are non-negotiable, unless of course you happen to be Russian, in which case let's talk. Citizen Lab complains about certain kinds of content filtering in South Asia, and what's up with Compass Call in Syria? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 26, 2018. Chromtech Security says an exposed MongoDB database has leaked information on roughly 25,000 individuals who had invested or were considering investing in the widely promoted BZOP cryptocurrency. The researchers, who said BZOP secured the database immediately upon notification of the exposure, report that the data included full names, street addresses, email addresses, encrypted passwords, wallet information, along with links to scanned passports, driver's licenses, and other IDs. HyperOptics H298N broadband home routers have a hard-coded root account and suffers from a DNS rebinding vulnerability. The problems affect personal data security, They also offer the prospect of widespread surveillance or distributed denial-of-service campaigns. HyperOptic is a British ISP, but the vulnerable routers are made by ZTE, which will no doubt harden U.S. government resolve against lightening up on recent sanctions against the Chinese device manufacturer. HPE ILO 4 remote management interfaces are reported to have been hit with ransomware. Also known as HPE Integrated Lights Out, ILO 4 is a management processor in some HP servers that enables administrators to remotely administer the servers. It's not yet clear if the threatened hard drives are actually being encrypted, but the ransom screens say the crooks want two bitcoins to release affected files, adding reassuringly, if implausibly, that the crooks need the money for good cause. The ransom demand is composed in clumsy, non-native English. The note says firmly that the two Bitcoin price is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable, that is, unless you, the victim, are from Russia, in which case they're willing to talk. That reservation is a common one in the Russian underground, who have no wish to consign themselves to the ministrations of their country's police and security services. 
This story is still developing. We'll see how extensive the campaign is, and whether it's true ransomware, a wiper, or simply misdirection to cover some other caper. Trustwave says that Western Digital MyCloud EX2 devices are insecure, exposing users' data to anyone with an interest in obtaining it. The problem lies in the default settings that enable DLNA, that's Digital Living Network Alliance, streaming from a storage device. Instead of fixing the issue, Trustwave complains, Western Digital simply recommends turning off DLNA if you don't want to use this feature. Hikvision has patched a vulnerability that exposes its cameras to remote control. It was an authentication problem that essentially made it possible to reach any camera through the HikConnect.com service. The researchers found it possible to see live video and playback from vulnerable devices, lock users out of their devices, take control of users' Hikvision accounts, or to add themselves as a shared user so the legitimate user would be unaware someone else was watching. Hikvision seems to have been commendably quick to respond to the bug disclosure. The vulnerability report was filed Saturday, and Hikvision had a fix-out on Tuesday. We recently reported on compromised Magento content management systems, with at least a thousand admin panels having been affected. Paul Burbage is a senior malware researcher at Flashpoint, where they've been researching the problem. Magento is a content management system uh, website built for e-commerce and powers several large to small mom-and-pop style stores on the Internet. Uh, You would want these websites to be secure, especially when people are conducting financial transactions as they are purchasing goods for sale on websites built with Magento. Uh, I was shocked to find out that these Magento website administrators are choosing poor passwords for security uh, of these sensitive websites where, you know, financial transactions are occurring. And part of the issue here is that people are sticking with default passwords. Is that the case? Uh, Yes, either that or really poor passwords that are uh, not only, uh, well, they're not unique, um, you know, through other uh, compromised data sets. Mm. Um, but right, the uh, the initial passwords that they're setting are also uh, weak, not very complex passwords, or just utilizing the uh, default password that comes with the initial installation. And so the adversaries were brute forcing these sites? Yes, that's correct. So once they have control of the Magento admin panel, what happens next? You know, with any type of CMS uh, website, be it WordPress, Joomla, and Magento, Drupal even, Uh, Once you have administrative access, you can upload files to that website, uh, being, you know, other PHP server-side code that runs back in on that web server. Uh, So it pretty much allows, you know, once admin access is granted, uh, full control over that website to execute arbitrary code. In this particular campaign, uh, we saw uh, two attack vectors. Uh, The first one being, it was a uh, JavaScript redirect um, that not only... Uh, sent victims to uh, CoinHive to mine uh, Monero cryptocurrency within the browser, um, but also another JavaScript uh, redirect that presented users with a fake Adobe Flash Player upgrade notice. Mm. Tell me about this um, ASIO Rolt. Is that how it's pronounced? I believe it's pronounced Azerolt, but don't Azerolt. Me on okay. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Azerolt Info Stealer, the visitors are presented with an Adobe Flash Player upgrade notice. Uh, once clicking on that, um, you know, update now button, the Azerolt info stealer malware was downloaded and executed on the victim's machine. Now, Azerolt info stealer uh, can harvest credentials on the system, everything from 
uh, email clients to uh, save browser credentials. And it's also used as a initial loader itself. Um, so one thing that the threat actors behind the Azeroth InfoStealer uh, command and control can do is load additional malware on top of that. In this particular campaign, they were loading uh, Rayrog Crypto Miner, which was another uh, you know crypto miner hidden within uh, Windows systems that also mine Monero. And in this case, the attackers were also taking some steps to avoid detection. As far as uh, detection is concerned, uh, with most uh, Monero miner uh, crypto malware, you're going to have uh, an element of being able to detect whether or not the system is uh, churning out a, a great amount of uh, resources. Uh, but with this particular attack, the uh, Rayrock crypto miner is meant to just kind of hide in the background and mine crypto coins unbeknownst to the uh, the victim. And, and in terms of, of who they were targeting, did it seem like there were uh, a, any uh, particular groups that they went after? There have been some industry uh, verticals as far as the initial uh, Magento compromised websites are concerned. Uh, such as the healthcare and education sector. This was really just uh, a look of the draw as far as whomever was visiting those uh, compromised websites. So it really wasn't any type of, you know, uh, directly targeted waterhole attack. That's Paul Burbage from Flashpoint. You can learn more about their research on compromised Magento sites on their website. It's in the blog section. Checkpoint and CyberInt says they've found new phishing tackle for sale on the dark web. The new kit, compiled and offered by a criminal whose nom de hack is Apache, enables users to craft convincing emails and redirect sites that closely mimic branding elements of well-known firms. The kit seems to cater to Spanish-speaking criminal clients. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab reports that NetSweeper technology is enjoying widespread use for online censorship in South and Southwest Asia. Governments of Afghanistan, Bahrain, India, Kuwait, Pakistan, Qatar, Somalia, Sudan, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen are said to be using the technology to block content they find objectionable. According to Radio Canada International, Citizen Lab and Ontario-based NetSweeper have been at loggerheads before, with at least one lawsuit filed against Citizen Lab and subsequently withdrawn. Citizen Lab's objection to the filtering doesn't appear to be content-neutral, but is instead based upon its conclusion that the regimes it says are misusing the technology are doing so to block content that appears to be protected under various international agreements. A Chinese think tank mulls a Sino-Russian condominium in cyberspace and likes what it thinks it sees. The director of the Center for Security and Development of Eurasia, China Institute for International Studies, said at a conference in Shanghai that it would be good if Russia and China got together to cooperate on security and stability in cyberspace, which could help avert cyber war. Moscow and Beijing probably do have similar views on what would constitute security and stability, but such a meeting of the minds might not commend itself to other parts of the world. Speaking of cyber warfare, U.S. EC-130 Compass Call electronic warfare aircraft are said to be encountering disabling Russian electronic warfare, presumably jamming, as they operate over Syria. Breaking defense, quotes General Raymond Thomas, head of U.S. Special Operations Command, having made remarks to this effect at the GeoInt conference. The U.S. Air Force describes Compass Call as, quote, an airborne tactical weapon system using a heavily modified version of the C-130 Hercules airframe. 
The system disrupts enemy command and control communications and limits adversary coordination essential for enemy force management. The Compass Call system employs offensive counterinformation and electronic attack capabilities. Our military desk remembers Compass Call as a big, powerful flying jammer, a kind of electronic Bigfoot stumping around noisily over the battle space, clobbering frequencies left, right, and center. When Compass Call was up and operating, Army units on the ground tended to shrug their shoulders and give up on tactical FM radio. Forget it, Jake. It's Compass Call. Our military desk trusts Compass Call has evolved into a more discriminating system. There's some dispute over whether the general said EC-130 or AC-130. The EC-130 is the dedicated electronic warfare ship. The AC-130 is a gunship, called variously Spectre, Spooky, Ghost Rider, and so on depending on model and local custom. Armament on the later models include a 30mm Gatling gun, a 105mm howitzer, and various other launch systems and hardpoints. It's a night-flying truck hunter that's seen a lot of use in the relatively benign airspace one usually encounters in counterinsurgency and counterterror operations. While it isn't an EW platform, the AC-130 does sometimes carry an electronics warfare operator as part of the crew, and it's possible the general may have meant spooky and not compass call. Whatever's being jammed, the Russians have long had a reputation for capable electronic warfare, and it wouldn't be surprising if the ether over Syria is a tough place to work. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.
And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, We had a story come by from the Register, and they were talking about mathematical backdoors and encryption algorithms. Uh, This is a topic that comes up uh, over and over again with privacy. What were they uh, getting at here? Well, in this talk, what they were basically showing was that these researchers were able to design an algorithm that, you know, for all intents and purposes, looked secure, but actually had a particular mathematical backdoor embedded in it that would then allow the researchers to break it. And this was meant to just be a demonstration about what could potentially go wrong uh, with standardized uh, crypto systems or, or any other crypto system that a researcher developed that may look perfectly secure to an outsider, but may have a, some secret, some secret uh, backdoor embedded in it that would allow the researcher to then uh, completely break security when it was actually used. To a researcher who was trying to determine whether or not there was a backdoor, it wouldn't have been readily uh, obvious that there was one in there. Exactly. So number one, it it wouldn't have been obvious that there was a backdoor at all. And so from the point of view of everybody else evaluating it, they would see nothing wrong with the proposal and they they might even uh, consider adopting it. And even if they suspected somehow that there was a backdoor, uh, they wouldn't be able to figure out what that backdoor was and so wouldn't be able to break it themselves. Now, is this the sort of thing that, that we've seen out in the real world where these sorts of things have been discovered? So it's unclear. I mean, there there were some suggestions by uh, people about uh, a few years ago claiming that there was a backdoor in a pseudorandom number generator that had been standardized by the U.S. government. It definitely you know, was the case that there could have been a backdoor there. Whether there was or wasn't is, is kind of uh, up for debate. But I think really they're just demonstrating the potential for these backdoors to be present. Now, now, one of the things I will say is that very often the U.S. government nowadays develops standards by public consensus or even by public competition. So, for example, the AES block cipher was designed by a public uh, worldwide competition where like, you know, anybody from all over the world could submit their algorithms. And these were studied and vetted by researchers again all over the world. And so while it's possible that one or more of the submitted algorithms had one of these backdoors present, it seems unlikely uh, exactly because these submissions were coming from all over the world. Actually, the eventual winner was a European submission, not an American one. And one of the things the article points out is that uh, you can't prove a negative. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly right. It's very difficult. Or it, it's impossible, really, uh, without some kind of external evidence. If you had you know, emails or you had some other evidence that this was going on, it would be very difficult to uh, prove anything. On the other hand, you know, I, I think the, um, uh, the hope would be that somebody who studied an algorithm for long enough would be able to tell whether or not there was a backdoor, or there are other techniques that people can use to try to indicate that there's no backdoor present. So, for example, what some people do if they're picking um, uh, constants to uh, seed their algorithm, they might choose them as, a, as the digits of pi. And the idea there is that, well, if you're choosing them as the digits of pi, then you clearly didn't have any influence into what those numbers were. So there are people are still thinking about ways to, to prove to others that they didn't do anything fishy in the design of an algorithm. But I guess there's always a, a back and forth there. And there's always a, that always leaves open the possibility that something did actually go wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.